Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin Ingle is off on her holidays this week in County Clare. And to tell you the truth, so am I. Rumour has it Fintan O'Toole is also knocking around this part of the West Coast. So maybe we'll have a socially distanced Irish Times get-together while we're here. Maybe. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to mention Minister of State for Education, Josepha Madigan, who this week spoke in the Doyle about being a survivor of sexual assault. During a debate on action to tackle sexual, domestic and gender-based violence, the minister said she was old enough to know there are very few women her age who have not been subjected to some form of sexual assault in their lifetimes. She said, I know this because I am one of them. It will not come as a surprise to those of us of a similar age who have suffered this trauma. Sometimes we have suffered it more than once. It was and is a lot more common than many believe. Ms Madigan, a family law solicitor, said that she always takes statistics, she reads, with a pinch of salt. Because as we know, most victims do not report their crime because of shame, a fear of judgment and a desire to forget. It should not be this way, she said, and she's right. And it's not just her generation. I'm sorry to say women of my generation who are a good bit older could also tell you many stories, as many of you probably know. It is not an easy thing to speak about trauma so publicly, but every time someone in a position of prominence does so, it can only be helpful to other victims. And so we applaud Minister Madigan for using her platform to raise awareness of something that too many women in this country go through. Now, art historian Catherine McCormack recently published an excellent book, Women in the Picture, Women, Art and the Power of Looking. In it, she argues that women's identity has long been stifled by woeful narratives and a limited set of archetypes. For art history to remain relevant, she says, we need to look again and reconsider many of the classics displayed in art galleries. In her book, she asks us to think about what these images have told us to value, opening up our most loved artworks, from those of Titian and Botticelli to Picasso and the Pre-Raphaelites. She also shows us how women artists from Berth Morisot to Beyoncé, Judy Chicago to Cara Walker, have offered us new ways of thinking about women's identity, sexuality, race and power. In this episode, Catherine speaks to Roisin Ingle about how studying art has shaped her feminism, why history fooled us into thinking there were no female artists in the past, the idea of the monstrosity of the female body in art and lots more. Have a listen. Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. Now, you begin the book by saying that art history has a reputation for being elitist and irrelevant. So will you start by telling us about that very bad reputation and about why you think we need to move beyond it? 
That's a great question to open. Thank you. Um, well, I think art history um, started as a practice really in the 19th century. And um, when we look back thinking about uh, the position of women in the 19th century, we're thinking about our colonial links um, with history and imperialism, um, the denigration of people of colour. Um, I think that a lot of those things are actually tied up together with the formation of art history as a discipline in this time because it started off as something that was about connoisseurship. It started off as something that was about um, reflecting the status of either the art collector um, or the connoisseur who positioned himself as the art historian who was bringing this knowledge that was somehow meant to be morally edifying in some cases or an expression of beauty that was going to be um, seen as being again morally uplifting in some way and important for someone's um, cultural consumption. But all of those things catered to a very small audience. Um, again as I'm going back to saying the interested parties who in the 19th century are in you know irrevocably linked to these bigger discourses today that we're rethinking about our history in terms of colonialism in terms of racism in terms of the suppression and denigration of women and so i think the study of art history um very until quite recently has excluded those members of society and that's something that um i found very inspirational as um a room for producing change so it was something that you know i'm definitely not the first person to raise these conversations about trying to open up art history's net and rethink its past and rethink its position as something elitist um but I think that the reason why it's really necessary is that I passionately believe that um, art history and critical thinking about images can give us the tools to apply to our other questions and areas that trouble us urgently within gender politics. And I've got lots to say about those, but it's probably I'll let you get a word in. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's that's a great explanation. So what I'd like to do is go back a little bit first, because how you ended up in this field. You know, it isn't the first thing you've done. You've done a few other things. Um, but maybe tell me about your life in art yourself as a young person. When when do you remember being first moved by art or images like that? Yeah, well, I remember um, my mum had a sequence of, of uh, or a series of books at home. And, you know, I was the I was the second person to go to university in my family. My mum went a few years before me as a mature student, but it wasn't something from an Irish immigrant family that had come over after, or yes, yeah, shortly after the war um, in the late 40s. Um, it wasn't something that was part of my family tradition and, and art and art history was definitely not something in my family tradition. But my mother had uh, some wonderful art books and I used to look at paintings and photographs. I used to sit behind the sofa in our um, in our little basement flat in London as a child. And I remember her going to exhibitions and buying catalogues and she was interested in it. So I absorbed it that way. And then um, when I was at school and just doing my A-levels and deciding what to do at university, I was really, um, you know, I was really taken by how images could tell a story um, and what other things came behind them. So how they related to the time in which they were produced. So not only a narrative of what was happening, um, but also how, you know, the way they were made and who they were made for told us so much more about, you know, the position of being human, whether that's to do with religion or to do with, you know, modernism. And so it was, um, 
yeah, it really drew me in like that. But um, as I say, and as I mentioned in the book, it was something that wasn't a natural progression for me. And then when I got to university, I didn't focus on feminism to begin with. It was very much embedded into the university um, that I studied at University College London, which has had a reputation for the past 20 years of um, of having interests in gender issues. Um, so it was something that I absorbed through that time. And it really was a consciousness raising, I think. Um, the books I was introduced to, um, the um, thinking and ideas, that, and also there were some leading um, feminists in their field who I encountered there, Tamar Garb, uh, Griselda Pollock, who didn't teach at UCL, but she was within that orbit. Um, and it really was a consciousness raising. And I referenced them in the book for that because I think it, it gave me such new perspectives for thinking about not just paintings and things that are quite alien to the everyday, but really about my life as a woman in the city and a woman who wanted to learn as well. Now, I can't let you go on without mentioning you did say they're an Irish immigrant family. Yes, and your name yes. is McCormick. So you better tell us all about your <laughs> Irish origins first Good before we go any further. There'll be, there'll be trouble to pay if I don't name check certain parties from West Clare, I'm sure. Um, so McCormick is my maiden name, which is my father's name, but um, which is not the West Clare connection. But that is um, on my mother's side. So both my maternal grandparents were born in Kilrush which is um, towards the coast in West Clare. And my mother lives not far from there now. She moved back to Ireland. Um, and of course, I must mention our Shannon, dear Shannon friends, uh, Mary and Brendan Walsh, who have seen me grow up over the years. And so they're, they're the key connection now um, with with West Clare and with Ireland. So so was your mother born in England? Then? She was, yeah, she was born. Both my parents were born in, in London, but both parents were born in Ireland. Both sets of parents were born in Ireland. So... Um, yeah, all my grandparents are Irish. Where were your dad's people from? They were from the north. So I'm not, it's a little bit of a murkier history there. Um, I'm not quite sure of all the details, but um, yeah, he was from, from the north, his family. Okay, so now we've established that basically you're <laughs> Irish. We can we can move on. And um, you mentioned university there. So um, it feels like it was a feminist awakening almost through art. So what are your early memories of that, of kind of um, being sort of opened up to the way women were depicted, I suppose, through paintings? So there was, I can remember actually quite specifically, um, there was a, a lecture we had on uh, 19th century painting and um, it was Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe, which is a very famous painting um, where the there are... Um, two men dress, fully dressed who are sitting in a park in Paris and there's one woman in front of them who is naked and her clothes are in a sort of huddle next to her um, and then in the background there's another woman who looks like she's sort of pouring some classical amphorae or, 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 or wine jug um, but really the my lecturer um, then who was Tamar Garb she got the members of the class to, to restage that scene in order to make and, and to sort of put ourselves in the position of this nude woman or naked woman, I should say, um, surrounded by two clothed men and to just make us start to think about what the politics of that would be in real life and in real time. What does it mean to not have any clothes on and to be sit, sat next to two people who are fully clothed in sort of bourgeois clothes, you know, sort of suited and booted, so to speak. And that really made me think about um, maybe the things that we don't immediately 
notice and see when we look at paintings that hang in our very esteemed cultural spaces and galleries and they are, um, I, d I don't think we see them clearly and we don't start to think about this idea of the difference between the genders. How is, why is it that we can, why is it that we're so comfortable and so familiar with, with naked images of women that are compromising to them? Um, and that's something that I explore a lot in my book and try and open that up a bit more of how have we become so desensitised to these images. Um, and that's not to say that nudity is bad and the naked body is anything we should be ashamed of, quite the opposite. But um, I began to realise that these images had been crafted by men for men then they weren't a demonstration of women's own bodies and sexuality on their own terms. Um, and that this was something that was being perpetuated through high culture and how high culture then trickles down into our adverts and then more recently into our social media uh, channels and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, I presume you went to see Hannah Gatsby's Douglas or did you? I saw it. Or I've, I've seen it online. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just going to tell our listeners because I think it's very relevant to your book. And mm. um, I was just looking back on it. I, it had a really profound effect on me. I hadn't realised until seeing Douglas or joined the dots in terms of the way women were depicted in, in art. So she's, it's a very funny show, as you've probably seen. But um, she talks about um, that loads of paintings are basically uh, women standing around in groups of three naked waiting for men. That's mm -hmm. a, a sort of a genre of art. So um, you have Raphael's The Three Graces from mm -hmm. 1504, Charles-André Van Luce, The Three Graces from 1763, Jan Brule, The Younger, Three Graces with a Basket of Flowers, 1635, and Peter Rubens, uh, The Three Graces from 1630. So she says that dancing naked in a group of three in the forest is the number one hobby of women of all time uh, only second to women chained to a rock so yeah it's kind of like watching uh, Douglas and reading your book you, you just realize I mean is it too much to say that essentially art over those centuries was the earliest forms of pornography really I mean the men were all had clothes on the women were naked um, and the object of it was to eroticize and objectify the woman and put them out there as, as a, you know, something to, for men to salivate over. Yeah, well, I think you're not wrong in saying that at all. I think that this um, eroticization and objectification of women's bodies has been at the very heart of Western culture. And I think that's a really important point that I'd like to make is that what we think is what humans have done since time immemorial is actually just the Western tradition of art that started in classical Greece because we look back, if you look at, um, um, and this is an area that I'm yet to be uh, very well versed in, but in lots of um, African art and art from outside of European traditions of classicism, you have a very d different depiction of women, which is, I would dare to say, in some areas, much more empowering than the ones that we have received as being the only ones, as, as you've outlined, especially women chained to rocks. That's the figure of Andromeda, which I talk about in the book, who is there in a sort of like an S&M pose um, for the satisfaction of a male viewer. You're absolutely right. I think we get into lots of danger. Well, there se it seems to arouse lots of um, <laughs> heated debates, to use an appropriate terminology, when um, we start to make these links between art and pornography. And pe lots of um, responses are very reactionary and very defensive. And I think that in itself is something really interesting. So why is it that we feel we have to defend these works um, from 
admitting their sexual content or openly admitting that they did serve an eroticizing and arousing a purpose. I don't see why why we can't look at that openly. I think we'd have a lot to learn from it. Mm. And just mention a couple of other things that um, Hannah Gadsby mentioned, which is the the genre of men enjoying showers of breast milk <laughs> mm. seems to be an, another one, and nude women frolicking amongst um, fully suited men. And yeah. she mentions the painter's studio. I can't remember if it's in your book, but it's um, Gustav Courbet. Courbet. I'm probably pronouncing him no, wrong. Is it Courbet? Abs- yeah, it's Courbet. Yeah, yeah. Gustav Courbet, the painter's studio, and basically that's a nude woman in a room full of fully mm-hmm. clothed men, yeah. as you do, and. I mean, it is kind of, there's so many examples that it's hard not to kind of immediately see that this is, uh, um, you can you can actually trace how the stereotypes around woman and beauty ideals and, uh, have persisted over the centuries. I mean, we talk about things like Rubenesque women and, you know, all that. And that's kind of, oh, that was great in the old days. There were bigger women. So that's maybe one time when, you know, the, the fantasy of the, the what women, men wanted in a, in a woman was was a bit bigger. But essentially it's nude. It's nude women. That's the way they wanted their women in pictures. Mm, I think it's that what, yeah, I think women being nude in paintings and sculptures has been um, something that has, it's, well, it's not to say that men haven't also been nude as well. So that's the other point to raise because I'm sure people out there will be going, listening to yeah. this saying, but what about the nude men? Um, yeah. And um, how we can counter that riposte would be to say that nudity has always meant different things for male and female bodies. So if you think about, I'm sure um, you walk down the street in Dublin, you walk down the street in any municipal spaces where you have sort of public sculptures commemorating things you'll find images of nude men but they're very often associated with politics with heroism with military victory and success Um, an example in London that I often use is outside the army and navy club in Pall Mall which is like the political heart of the city Um, you have a nude a classically nude soldier but you never have nude women expressing those ideas that are to do with politics with heroism with anything serious Nude women appear as allegories of things, as rivers or of nature. Um, and um, and so it, it does raise this, this very pronounced difference in the way men and women's bodies have been perceived and continue to be perceived. You know, women's bodies are still taboo. Women can't breastfeed openly in public. They can't use their bodies to do things. They can be vilified. A woman, you know, um, uh, depicts post pictures of her body on social media and there's always a furore and debate over whether she should do that how can she do that what her body looks like um and i think it still remains you know very different for women's bodies in public spaces and and it does trickle down even to now because as often you see pictures of whether it's at award uh, ceremonies or various things where there's, you know, fully suited men and then women wearing not not very much. And that's kind of what we still yes, expect. So yes, it has a massive yes, trickle down yes, effect. I yes, think. absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah. And um, I think the Eurovision Song Contest that I was recently watching sort of illustrated that point very neatly that in order to have any for anyone to be interested in a woman performer, she needs to be wearing next to nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the other thing, I mean, it's good that you mentioned men and nudity as well, because I suppose in, in, in other ways, men were just as much pigeonholed, but in a, obviously in a more dominant kind of powerful way. But always, you know, it's the military thing. It's the, you know, the, the powerful man. There's no sort of um, subtlety in that. It's it's a very binary kind of black and white Absolutely. view, men and women throughout the ages yeah. in art. Yeah, I think you're right there. And it's an it's an incredibly important point to raise that um and and 
And one of the things I always say that thinking about these ideas is not just for women. It's not just aimed at women. I think it serves everybody as a society for exactly what you're saying in breaking down predetermined gender roles and expectations. And um, and there were lots of artists, of course, who did challenge these. And there were lots of artists who challenged um, that stereotype of the heroic male, as there were lots of women artists who have challenged and, and given us alternatives to the objectified, eroticized, nude of art history that we're so comfortable with that we, you know, it's become invisible. Um, but those aren't the works that tend to enter into public consciousness as much. Those aren't the works that appear on, you know, tote bags and mouse mats and as merchandise. They are the ones that are, um, you have to go looking for them. One of the things from your book um, that you discovered kind of astounding in the National Gallery in London which in which I've been there before it's an amazing uh, collection it's gorgeous and actually the Portrait Gallery in London's a wonderful place to wander around too can't wait to go to London sorry <laughs> I'm dying to get back but there's 2,300 pictures in the National Gallery in London and only 21 of them are by women so this is the other thing I mean actually women being able to be the creators is is still something that we're kind of pushing against 100% and that is so important because I think that it's a it's a numbers game it's a question that if you if women are held back from being artists and makers which until the 20th century was a very active impingement on women um you know it wasn't until 1930 the 1930s that you had a female member of the Royal Academy which is the in 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 Britain which is the you know the the national recognition of artistic status to have membership to that is the sort of validation of being an artist. Um, until the 1930s, that was Dame Laura Knight, despite the fact that two women were actually among the founding members in the 1700s. Um, but um, as I write typical, about it, it is. And I think Ugh. that there's, there's often, um, you know, there's often an argument that says, well, we can't have more women in collections because there just weren't as many women artists. And to that, I would say yes and no. Women were held back, you know, through. So we, do, we have our Michelangelo's, our Leonardo da Vinci's. We don't have so much of an equivalent of a household name of women artists working in that period. But there were women and they were brilliant and they provide an alternative to this very male dominating version of art history where we think artists are automatically male um but you know they again art history is to blame that it hasn't you know it's quite often forgotten their stories the archives have been put down in the basement um their works are held in storage um and and thankfully that is changing now and that is um we're under a huge sort of urge to recuperate these forgotten women and actually you mentioned the National Portrait Gallery what they have in in place now it's a job that I interviewed for actually which I didn't get but it was um as curator of missing women and they are um urgently trying to 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 to, to find um or to um add to their collection where they have um uh, women of who've contributed significantly um in the national you know in in our national history and to have their image there um, in the National Portrait Gallery um, to provide a, a counter to this very male-oriented version of history that we have received as being normal. 
Okay. Now, um, you're very interested as well in motherhood, pregnancy and mm. birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us about that and how it informs your thinking on art. Oh, wow. Well, that is, again, something that was part of my own consciousness raising, I think, that I became interested in that. And it came when I was um, uh, when I was pregnant with my first child. I was doing my PhD and my PhD wasn't actually related to anything feminist. But it was during that time that I think I became radicalised Um even though I'd had that early consciousness raising as an undergraduate that I mentioned. But in my own work and research, um, I wasn't concentrated on anything feminist until that point. And I found that um, what I had taken for granted as um, an equitable environment or or a place where gender equality didn't have to be talked about, when I became pregnant, I immediately fell counter to discrimination by the university. A number of different things happened. And I collected together, banded together, with another group of women who were in a similar position and we started exploring these issues and doing some form of protest. We sort of went into the library with our screaming newborns um, in order to sort of disrupt <laughs> space, in order to get the university to pay attention to us and our needs and the fact that motherhood and intellectual activity were not mutually exclusive. Um, and that's a whole other huge conversation. But um, in terms of coming down to the artistic Um, uh, output I then became interested in images of motherhood and rethinking images of motherhood that go beyond the Virgin Mary and something that in Ireland is a very familiar sight and something that with my own Irish upbringing was also something that was an image very familiar to me so it was um it was very significant to start unpacking that and un, un, and rethinking that. Um, so I write about that in the book, um, how women provided alternatives that take us away from this idea of the Virgin Mary as the silent, the meek, the mild, the merciful, which is when we sort of strip all the storytelling away, the Virgin Mary is a woman who was sort of um it's an enforced reproduction it's forced reproduction you know she was impregnated in a non-consensual the original vessel way. she was the original vessel but when we you know she an, an angel a male angel comes and says you're going to be pregnant you're going to have the son of god um and it, in a way it's a non-consensual pregnancy you know she doesn't have a choice in it so i think that's very interesting you know, i might be i might be you know getting myself into deep waters here but um no, you've come to the right place Good. for that sort of theory. Go, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I became interested in how, in looking at other images of motherhood and other images of birth, and I was very lucky that I was um, teaching. I do at Sotheby's Institute in London. I started to teach as part of uh, a course that I, I run there called Women in Art. Um, I started to teach a lecture on rethinking the idea of motherhood. And through that, I was lucky enough to curate a two-part exhibition in London in 2019 to 2020, which was thinking about late 20th century artists and contemporary artists who really had this as their central theme. Um, and I, yes, I found myself with lots of very inspiring uh, women, artists. Um, and actually, there is a link to an Irish artist, Jessie Jones. I don't know if you were going to mention that, but her work does in some ways come back into this idea of mothering and reproduction. So Jessie Jones um, represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale a few years ago, I believe it was 2017. 
And her work was called Tremble, Tremble, which was at Talbot Rice Gallery and it's toured internationally. Um, and it was less, it, I guess it was not about mothering in a traditional way, but it was about reproductive autonomy. And it was against the backdrop of the um, amendment, the referendum to amend the uh what what's which what's the constitution the, yeah, the eighth amendment the eighth yeah. amendment of the constitution exactly um and so her work i found very interesting i talk about it in the book because she draws on these um histories of women's um lack of autonomy for their own reproductive lives um uh, in this fabulous installation that sort of draws on the figure of the witch as well so all of these uh, sort of the monstrous woman um, or that haunts, you know, our nightmares of, of culture. Yeah, well, speaking of the monstrous women, because that's the final chapter in your mm. book, and basically you're saying that the idea of female monstrosity is almost always related to women's reproductive yeah, bodies, yeah. vaginas and wombs. They've been mythologized mm-hmm. as sort of lethal traps that yeah. emasculate and castrate men. The insides of their bodies imagined as a seething mystery dra- that draws on our primal fears of the archaic mother and the un- unknowable places in, in women. God, it's a, an awful uh, <laughs> vision. <laughs> Tell us a little bit of that, about that before oh. we get on to some positive stuff, yes. which is about the amazing women doing brilliant things yeah. in the art world at okay. the moment. Okay, okay. So the monstrous women, yeah, I found when I was um, looking through, um, just sort of surfing through sort of images of Western culture, um, I realised that the women who were deemed as monstrous, and within that I included the figure of the witch, it was always to do with menstruation, about having excessive libidos, um, about vaginas. Um, I talk about the figure Lilith within there. So she's sort of a really key monstrous woman because she was the first wife of Adam and she refused to lay beneath him during sexual intercourse. Um, She said, we're equal you know God created us equal as man and woman from the same source Um, and then she went off and had a wild time sort of copulating with demons um, and became this figure on which um, women's sexuality became vilified so in the 19th century again uh, Lilith became synonymous with the character of the new woman so the woman who wanted to be sexually emancipated the woman who didn't wasn't satisfied with um, heterosexual you know, patriarchal normative marriages wanted to live with other women and have sexual relationships with other women. Um, and Lilith, yeah, there's always lots of stories about Lilith stealing semen. You know, she was blamed for being the, that's that's the explanation for men's wet dreams that Lilith came and stole semen in order to impregnate herself because she's so rapacious. Um, and then you have other figures, you know, there's, an, there's a brilliant essay um, by Barbara Creed, which is about the monstrous feminine. And um, she relates it to 20th century cinema. So when we think about the horrific beasts in cinema, such as uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, that's something that reproduces out of control. You know, so quite often we have these figures of fear are to do with uncontrollable reproduction. And in a way, what else is that? But also linked to the, the sort of clampdown on women's choices about their reproduction, that they have to reproduce within marriage, that they have to, you know, they have to reproduce in order to serve uh, a family dynasty or all, all sorts of reasons. Um, so the other types of monsters within there, I thought was really interesting that women of colour are often put into that that um, territory as well. So I talk about Cara Walker's work and she's got an exhibition on at the moment in Basel. Um, 
and she is a familiar figure in 21st century um, public art as well. So she's made a number of things that sort of counter our idea of the monument. Anyway, she did this piece called The Mammy Sphinx um, in Brooklyn um, about, I think it was 2014, 2015. And again, that's about the repressed uh, figure of the enslaved woman and her history um, as something that reemerges as a monst- as a monstrous, you know, overpowering figure, and this is seventy five foot long sphinx that's coated in sugar, that sort of melts and congeals in front of the audience. So um, there's a lot within there, and then of course the whole thing about witches and witches being sexually insatiable, and we have lots of images of 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 that, um, and the the demonization of women as witches um, always referred to, you know, doing things with their menstrual blood and having sex in improper ways. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in there. And even bringing it up to, again, contemporary times, you also talk about um, Cardi B and Mm. WAP. Uh, You say the critical reception was complex. Some hailed it as a feminist masterpiece. Others suggested its explicitness was a backward step for Mm. feminists. It's an interesting one. It's, It's funny, even though, how in a book about art history you come to to Cardi B and that kind of very controversial thing because I think it's there's definitely two camps some people feeling it's you know loads of backward steps for feminism Mm -hmm. other people thinking no this is really empowering this is really important where do you stand on it or what's your view yeah so I think it's a great question I'm really glad you brought that up because I what I really wanted to do in the book was to make art history relevant so going back to your first question how can we draw on these ideas and actually apply them to the sorts of conversations we're having today where do I stand on it? I can see both sides of the argument. I'm not trying to do a cop out here because I feel that we don't. One of the problems, I think, within lots of debates around feminism or lots of debates around women's bodies that draw on feminist ideas is that it has to be one thing or another. And I think that that is, not, you know, that's sort of um, a, a sabotaging approach that it has to be one thing or another. And if you choose one, you're not a the right type of feminist. I don't agree with that whatsoever. I think that with that issue, and they were, you know, they were sort of conservatives reaching for holy water and blessing themselves because there were two women of colour who were talking autonomously about their own sexuality. And I think that for me, the key thing was that people didn't like the fact that they were getting rich from doing it. And I think it illustrates a fact, regardless of whether we think what they're doing with their bodies is a backward step or is an empowering step. I think that's another debate, which I'm very happy to have. And I've got lots to say about it. But I think that um, it really illustrated the fact that it's okay to have sexually explicit images of women when they're in the service of, I don't know, a male producer or um uh, someone who's making money out of them, but when they are getting, in fa- you know, fabulously wealthy, and I think it really, you know, it was the chart topping for for a long time and generated a lot of income. I think that's got a lot to do with it, actually. That um, if they can get rich from their own sexuality, that's where the problem often lies. Mm. It's interesting, something Sinead O'Connor has been talking about in recent publicity for her book and her view would be very much, no, that is a retrograde step in music where women are having to kind of exploit themselves or, you know, wear revealing clothes or, you know, exploit their sexuality in order to sell records that she feels that's like coming down from on high in terms of the record industry. absolutely right. And I'm glad that you haven't let me sort of get away with that because I wouldn't, I, I completely completely see that as part of the debate and I think that's um, the idea that um, women's 
sexuality has to be a factor of their success, which is, you know, what we've been talking about. And also the fact that perhaps um, an over-objectification of one's own body um, may not be the most authentic demonstration of female sexuality if it is relying on the older models that have always been you know, so that therein lies the problem. So I think we're we're skirting this issue. And I think it comes from a lack of familiarity with work by women doing this. And the more work by women we see and the more work by women that's produced exploring this, then we will have alternative models to the ones that have always been exploitative and objectifying and have been demeaning. So I think there is this double edge. And I, I mentioned this a little bit, you know, in other places I've had this conversation that do we clamp down on women doing that, you know, to reject what they're doing and to dismiss it is, you know, I wouldn't do that because I think that um, the very act of taking agency over the authorship of your self-presentation is already a radical thing. However, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that it is still relying on older models that have exploited women. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation. And like you say, we could be here for hours, but let's end on a high note. I mm. think there, you you mentioned, um, you know, exciting new women artists who are challenging sort of the orthodoxy and the way yeah. women are either portrayed in art or, or the art that they create. I mean, you mentioned Beyonce in there, actually. Yeah. And there's um, you mentioned Cara Walker, then there's Judy Chicago yeah. and Bertha Monso. Is that how you pronounce her? Morisot. Bertha Morisot, Morisot yeah. yeah. So she was actually, a, she was radical for the 19th century. So she was one, she's one of my favourite artists for rethinking motherhood um, and maybe revealing the instabilities of that, that figure of the perfect mother. So she's someone who um, I re- really re- has resonated with me for that. Judy Chicago was part of the amazing second wave of feminist artists who um, whose work um, now there's in some degree there is a a degree of ambivalence about praising them because um, of the exclusive nature of the sorts of women that they served which was very much a sort of white middle class educated movement so um, and I think that's important to recognize Um, Cara Walker as we've talked about um, is not exclusively a feminist artist but her work deals with histories of exploitation of of enslaved people people of color and the way that history has memorialized and triumphalized um heroes and colonial heroes um and there's so many wonderful women i mean if you go on i feel very privileged to be part of a community of 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 um women artists who i've sought out and discovered um I'm involved in recovering some artists from the 1970s. There's an artist I'm working with at the moment called Anne Healy, who was part of the second wave women's movement um, in the 1970s. She sounds like she might be Irish. She she? might. She might. I'll ask her the next time I speak. Find out. (laughs) Anne Healy, who's 91. And, you know, she has been waiting for recognition of the work that she did in the 70s and 80s. Um, And so the thing that I go back to is the fact that our galleries and our museums don't necessarily put those works front of house. And I think that's the thing that needs to change so that we don't lose a sight of the things that we appreciate from our history in these institutions, but they have to be seen alongside the now and the contemporary and put into conversation. They cannot just remain these, you know, anaesthetized objects on the wall that continue to perpetuate and normalize discourses about women's bodies and the invisibility of women makers and creators. 
And I presume you don't want to get rid of these uh, graces and nude women frolicking and chained to rocks because it's important that we're able to look at them and see that narrative as it unfolded. And if we shut them away, we're kind of forgetting that. Uh, would that be fair? Uh, of course. And I don't believe in cancel culture. You know, I think we're having lots of discussions at the moment and how our heritage deals with things that are politically intolerable to us right now. Um, and do we lock them away? Do we throw them in the river? I don't know if you followed the story last summer. Um, Edward Coylston, who was a, a slave trader in Bristol, his statue was pulled down, thrown into the river. It's now been re-exhibited, but it's been exhibited um, on the horizontal rather than on the vertical. Yes. And so, you know, so we're having all these interesting conversations about what do we do? And I think we have to, throwing them away and locking them up is not the answer. We have to be aware of the barbarism of our past in order to appreciate where we are in the present. Um, and also to see the, to see them not, you know, I think that we're not here to 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 create to be sort of create a culture war, even though there's many culture wars going on at the moment, um, to sort of denigrate it and write things off totally. It's just one aspect of it. Right. And so I think that one of the important things is to be able to see the tension of the works that we find beautiful, but also the works that are troubling and to be able to see that side by side and to be able to think productively about that, I think could lead us into really good places. So Catherine, now that we're, we're you're open a bit more than us, I think in London, I think you might be even dining indoors. It sounds we so are. exotic. We are. Yeah, <laughs> we're not, we're still on the, on the verandas and the balconies <laughs> and the, the terraces, but um, we'll get there soon, I think in, in July. Uh, but, you know, we are able to go into galleries again now, which is wonderful. Um, when, say, listeners to this podcast are walking around their galleries or maybe want to highlight this with, um, say, our National Gallery or other galleries, what kind of thing could they be saying to them? I mean, I think you you put it in a very positive sense. Like, well, we are where we are. This is this is the history of art as it as we nothing can change that. But there are, I suppose, decisions that can be made now um, and the ways things can be curated now can be different. So is it a good idea to maybe question, you know, how many women artists are on these walls and all that kind of thing? Yes, 100 percent. And I think the channels of doing that haven't traditionally been very open. And I wouldn't say they are still very open. Um, and I think, you know, there have been a, a number of occasions when people have made interventions and they've been shut down in very violent ways. Um, and that's normally by other members of the public. So I think, um, yes, I think it's hard to to find a way to express that to institutions without doing something really dramatic, like, I don't know, staging protests. Or I have an, um, an artist friend who in Chicago surreptitiously put alternative wall texts over, um, you know, um, the wall texts that were in place for certain images to do with Gauguin and, you know, Gauguin's history as being a, a sex tourist, really, um, and his depiction of, of women of colour who were minors and, and things like that. So, but obviously that's a, that's a kind of criminally prosecutable offence. So I'm not advocating that, um, nor what suffragettes did in slashing paintings in the National Gallery, which happened in 1914, 1918. Um, so I think that 
it's it is a difficult one to find that way of 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 communicating with our cultural gatekeepers um i think that is a problem that we don't have that flow and so we have a, a hierarchy of who decides what's good for us um and if we can find ways to break that up and 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 to talk about what we need more um then that's a great thing having said that there are loads of collections who are doing wonderful things and um uh, and and are very very aware of these debates and making inroads into tackling yeah. it so, it's definitely a conversation that's happening in these is. in these spaces which, yeah. is, which is brilliant I can't let you go without mentioning Tracy Emin because to me oh, yeah. her winning the Turner Prize and her putting her bed out there mm. and her used tampons out yeah. there and everything that it meant to be yeah. a woman was a huge moment even for those of us who aren't well versed in in art did it resonate with you and do you feel it was that a huge thing I do. Uh, in terms of female representation in art I do I think when when I saw that in the mid 90s and I was a teenager so I was maybe 14 or 15 and it was one of the first times I'd been to see an exhibition like that and I was kind of overwhelmed um and you know I was a teenager in that uh, explosion of um Brit art, as it was known in the 1990s, with Tracy Emin and these sort of um, enfant terribles of, um, of of contemporary art, um, and I think its place in a canon of feminist art history is really secure because, for all the reasons you talk about, she and actually I I meant to write about her in the book, but I had to take it out because I didn't have enough space in the Venus chapter. I wanted to write about that because we're so used to these images of women, perfect women cellulite-free, blemish-free, lying invitingly on beds, waiting to be, you know, who, you know, performing for an owner, performing for a male gaze. And she took that very ubiquitous space of the bed, the sexy inviting bed, and she turned it into a place of, you know, of... Uh, it's the it's the traces of her body that are there, which are the really interesting things. The body doesn't even have to be there. It's the aftermath of her, you know, psychological breakdown. And as you say, the detritus of her body, the things that we're meant to always keep hidden, like our dirty underwear and use tampons and things like that. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of art that makes us feel, you know, makes us makes us look away or or you know, it makes our stomach churn a bit. We art is there to make us question those um those expectations in this case about how women should be and how they should behave. So she was a trailblazer for that one hundred percent and uh, I think that work will only grow with time and its importance for feminist art history. I mean, I think, like you say, art is supposed to make us feel a bit uncomfortable. That's kind of the purpose, make us question and wonder. Um and in the past the way women have been depicted like naked, like as damsels in distress or mm-hmm. as saints or, you know, mothers always or as femme fatales. That was like a very easy depiction and a very uh, safe and acceptable way. And that's the way things were then. But now we're much more able to express um, what women are in all their complexity yeah. and all their, uh, you know, like you say, women of colour and all sorts of intersectionality. And it's an exciting time. I mean, it's a pity it's taken this long, obviously, yes. as everything is. But it, your book, it goes so far to sort of explaining that and explaining how images of women have kind of evolved and, and where we are now and how we got here. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Um, it's it's a wonderful book. Um, we'll recommend it to everybody. And uh, have you any final words for people who might be wanting to get interested in women's art now after listening to this? I do. Any encouraging I, words? I actually think that if you want to, I mean, obviously buy my book, it's a, it's priced <laughs> discreetly for the purpose that I didn't want it to be an expensive art book that you had to read at home. I wanted something that you could you know, carry around easily, read quickly. Um, I think actually that Instagram is a great resource and it's one 
that I use myself avidly um, because it's such a visual means and you'll find work by women artists um, and lots of kind of bite-sized information about um you know, about discussions uh, to do with, with women's art and women producing art. There's um, Art Girl Rising is a great account to championing women artists. Um, I'd have start with that, um, have a little browse around there. And then also, I think, get down to your local bookshops. There's, mine's not the only book that that, um, that deals with this. There are lots of other people who've written wonderful, wonderful work. So um, there's lots out there to see and engage with. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking. It's a really, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. So interesting. And the best of luck with everything you do. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Catherine McCormack, who we are now totally claiming as Irish, of course. And a reminder that our book is called Women in the Picture, Women, Art and the Power of Looking. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks for listening. Bye from Claire. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.